Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. So some of you may know that Sarah and I had the pleasure of going to a Chicago premiere of Psalm 3. It was so exciting. I felt like a movie star. It also helped that they were actually filming something outside of the theater, too. Yeah, that that is why. (laughs) Also, in Chicago, there was a movie set going on outside of the theater. There were ropes and lights everywhere. It was really special. (laughs) We're like, this is for the premiere? And they're like, no. We're (laughs) filming a movie. They're like, no, could you wait walking into the theater so that we can finish this set? And we're like, or this scene? And we're like, but we're going to be late to our movie. Yeah, but we weren't, and it was awesome. And uh, we got to do uh, a Q&A. They had Q&A with two of the cast members and the director, which was awesome. So cool. So Dustin and Dylan, which we'll kind of get into all the members and all the characters. But yes. So, Psalm the Experience. Psalm the Experience. And today, in honor of that, we have a twofold reason why we're drinking the wine that we're drinking. And we are drinking the Three Valleys. Um, It's a red blend from Sonoma County from the Ridge Winery. Ridge. That's the key. Yes. Ridge is the winemaker, the vineyard that was part of, you guys may recall, the Judgment of Paris when we talked about. Um, Ranked number five. Is that right? Yes. The the Montebello. Yep. The Montebello. Mm -hmm. So they're red. Um, And then it is also... oh. Should I divulge the other one? Yeah, yeah, no, go for it. Okay, it was also that Montebello um, 1973, I thought it was, the vintage at the um, Judgment of Paris, was Fred Dame, Master Sommelier's uh, AHA wine. Yes. I don't know if the ex- ex- exact vintage was his AHA wine, but yeah. yeah. Yes. So I'm going to go ahead and open this while that is loud. Squeaky, squeaky. Um, so we're not drinking the 1973. We are drinking the 2016. Well, I'm pretty sure we could Because I'm pretty sure it's impossible to get that. Um, and we are not drinking the Montebello, but we are drinking um, the Three Valleys blend. So Something that, that fits a little bit better into people's uh, budget. Exactly. Yeah. So if you want to get a taste of history um, just by drinking Ridge Wine, then this is a great value. I think it was, what, $24 or something? It was something like that. I think it was actually the cheapest of the Ridge wines that were available when I went. Uh, So, you know... I don't think you can go wrong. I've never had one before, and I've always seen it. And I remember on our little honeymoon thing, they had Lighten Springs by Ridge, and it was super expensive, which is why we didn't... (laughs) Yeah. We didn't get it, but I was very intrigued with it. So I'm excited to be drinking Ridge and we are, having... We, we're going to do two pours. We're going to do the regular pour, and then we're going to end up doing a... It was a healthy pour, decanted, Sarah. Sorry. <laughs> a decanted pour. <laughs> I'm, I'm recuperating. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh. <laughs> we're recording we this pretty early. Yeah, this is a little bit of an early. So anyways, cheers. Cheers, bitch. Oh, it smells wonderful. Like I said, I don't think that we were going to go wrong with any wine that we got from this vineyard. Right, right. Um, and it's a 2016, and we were just talking about this before we started the recording, but it's it was bottled in February of this year. How is it? It's pretty good. I don't even think it needs some aeration. Maybe just a tiny bit. Maybe it doesn't wait with coffee that well. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I would maybe... Uh, 
cleanse your palate there, girl. Let me get some apple for a minute. <laughs> Jamie's been drinking coffee. Um, <laughs> anyways, as we get into before before we get into the the, the movies, I do want to say that if you haven't seen any of the Sam movies, watch them. If you want to pause this podcast and go watch them first, do it. <laughs> Otherwise, you are going to get some spoiler alerts, but that's okay because okay. you should still watch them. So you can listen to this and then know what to expect, but it's still going to be amazing. Anything that we talk about is just not going to do the films justice, no. I don't think, as much as I like to say that we have fairly good insights about it. But it's one of those things where you watch the movie. We've watched these movies, the first two, multiple times. Psalm 3, we're, we both bought. So it's... We have a love affair with these with these films, and it's something that we continue to learn from these films and take that into our own wine drinking practice. Yeah, and it really... And just I, wine I think it also brought the wine industry and sommeliers out into the public's eye, and it's Absolutely. become a much bigger thing than it was before. Um, and so people... I, I think it's actually been a gateway for people exploring wines and... Agreed. It just in... Yeah, in general. So, um... So this... This puppy, we're, we'll talk more about the about the film and some of our takeaways from not only the premiere but just the other films in general. We mentioned before this is a red blend and it's made up of four different grapes: Zinfandel, which I think makes Sarah six, very happy. Sixty-eight percent. I love this label because it gives mm-hmm. us all the details we want. It's fifteen percent Carignan, twelve uh, percent Petite Syrah, and five percent Grenache. Yep, and it's fourteen point three percent ABV. So pretty solid, That's pretty good. And for today, for the purposes of today, I know we've talked about three of those grapes before in previous podcasts. So we're going to focus our attention today on Carignan, which is um, probably a lesser-known grape. Although I think that many would be surprised to know that it is part of several different blends. It's becoming more widely available, oh. I think. Well, so. and the funny thing is that it used to be widely available, and then. It sort of fell off the market a little bit. Yeah. And I think it was primarily used as blends, but now we we are seeing it like specific single varietal mm-hmm. wines made up of Carignan. Um, it's actually recommended as a Thanksgiving wine. Agre- so yep. it's kind of a good time holiday wine to be um, doing this as well. Because yeah. I think Zin is a great holiday wine as well. So this oh, mix, for sure. this blend is kind of nice. Um, so what else should we know about Carignan? Okay, this wine, uh, surprisingly, I thought it, this grape originated in France, but okay. it actually began in Spain, uh, northeastern Spain specifically, uh-huh. and it was called, I'm going to butcher it, Mazuelo. Oh, nothing like the current name. No, but there is a part of Spain that calls it something very similar to Carignan, so that's where they think that you know the French and Italians and Americans also took they preferred that. I, I kind of like that because it, it sounds very unique. Whereas like we have Malbecs, we have anything when you have like Muscat. Remember Muscadel mm-hmm. is actually spelled two different ways. And one's a red, one's a white, I think. Okay. Anyway, that's, a, that's actually really helpful to know that you can kind of tell like where it's from. Although the bottle should say it. At any rate, that's enough about where it came from and the many names that it's known as. Carignan really works very, very well. As Sarah said... It's a prime Thanksgiving wine mm-hmm. <clears throat> because it goes very well with cinnamon spice dishes, berry-based sauces, and smoky meat. So it's, I mean, it it's, sounds it's perfect. pretty perfect. It like aligns with the holiday uh, meals very well. 
And then finally, this is, you know, you can, you probably want to decant Carignan by itself. I know we've talked a little bit about aging wines and ironically, it becomes somewhat important in some too. Yes, it does. <laughs> Talking about aging and this wine, you could age for about five to 10 years. It does have higher acidity levels and tannins, probably like medium high, depending on where it's from, the regions. But beyond that, it's not something that's going to really, I think, develop more so after that decade of yeah. aging. So for this specific wine, the <clears throat> the website does say that it will be most enjoyable over the next five years. This wine? Yes, this okay. one specifically. Okay. So, um, all right. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. I think this is a great, like I said, $24. I mean, why not? For five, you could age it for a few years and see what happens. Um, I am picking up some really like bright acidity, soury cherry. It's spicy. Raspberry. There is a little spice. bit of spice there and too. I get a little bit of smoke <clears throat> too. Do, I get it on the back of my throat to yeah. be honest. Um, so, so something about this specific vintage and mm -hmm. the drought. So they say they had a, they, this was the fifth year of drought. And they were threatened to have vines that were going to be dried up. So in late spring, the storms carried through, and they had a they had a pretty warm summer, so they were happy for that. And then harvest started two weeks earlier than usual, um, and they had a short fermentation period, so they got some quality tannins from there. Um, yeah, so I mean. They say it's appealing now, and the wine shows beautiful fruit layered with exotic spice and complex minerals. It will be most enjoyable over the next five years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was written, <clears throat> excuse me, in December of last year. So, you know, those are, I'd say, pretty high accolades for a wine being so young, like a year, not even bottled yet. Mm -hmm. So that was like probably right, yeah, right before they bottled, doing a couple barrel tastings to, to kind of see what everything's feeling and looking like. <clears throat> yeah, and this wine specifically contains grapes from about eight <coughs> vineyards in Sonoma. Ooh. Yeah. Eight. Eight. Uh-huh. Um, and so they this comes from all of their sites. So they have different wineries, which we'll kind of talk about. Yeah. Um, but it's not a... They have a lot of wines that are single vineyard, and this one comes they from do. all of their vineyards. Uh, so... It has the, they call it their winemaking and blending at its finest because it's coming from all different, all of their different vineyards. It's representative of sort of everything oh, that yeah, they do. Everything yeah, everything that they cool. do. Um, their Carignan is old vine. So that is what's giving us our acidity and our kind of bright fruit. And the Zin um, gives us uh, more of that spice and kind of depth. Yeah. So same as the Petit Syrah. The, oh, I would admit yeah. that should round it out and create, I mean, color wise, what are we looking at here? Oh, it's definitely like Ruby. <clears throat> um, this was a hundred percent air dried in American oak barrels. What is 5% were new. Well, we'll kind of get into their wine. Making oh, excellent. Things. Sorry. I'm jumping um, the gun. <laughs> 5% was new. 49% was one and two years old and 46% were three and four years old. And then it was aged 10 months in the barrel. Okay. Um, they were hand harvested, which is only what they do. They only hand harvest grapes. Um, De-stemmed, crushed, and then fermented on the native yeast. Okay. Followed by a full malolactic 
um, fermentation on the natural occurring bacteria. And then um, they used only minimal effective sulfur for the wine. And they actually tell you how much. Do they really? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy. Uh, and then um, it was membrane sterile filtered at bottling. So this keeps with their philosophy of minimal intervention, which we'll kind of talk about too. Uh, yeah. So um, they give you a lot of information on their website on each specific wine. It's great. And their history and their winemaking. So I wish everybody did that. I know. <clears throat> so a little bit about the history. <clears throat> like we said... Um, Judgment of Paris, so the Ridge Montebello was number five, and then when they did the reenactment of the Judgment of Paris in 2006, they actually went number one. What? So 30 years later, wait, and 30 years later, they actually retasted the same vintages too, if I'm not mistaken, because yep. I think I reread that uh, I, yes, I the other day. Yes, I believe so. I mean, Crazy, huh? and again, you guys, you can't really, it's very difficult to get your hands on these particular vintages. No, you can't. I mean, it's impossible. Well, it's not even very difficult. It's Dylan pretty much proved, Dylan proved it True, possible. <laughs> but that being said, they do say in the movie that it's like literally only three bottles left or something yeah. like that. So I would call it impossible. Just Unless saying. you know the right people. Right. Unbelievable. Anyway, I, we can talk more about some in a minute, but t- Tell us a little bit about Ridge and sort of like sure. the history of it. So it actually first started in 1885. So this is pre-Prohibition. Whoa. And there was a doctor named, oh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Oshia Perone, who uh, oh, bought 180 acres near the top of Montebello Ridge. Oh. Um, and he constructed this winery. He planted vineyards. He, he terraced the slopes. And he produced the first vintage Montebello in 1892. Whoa. So this is their current production facility, and they call it the Upper Vineyard, and it's also known as Perone Ranch. Okay. Oh, Um, it's still in existence. That's awesome. Yeah, (coughs) it is. So then in the 1940s, William Short, who is a theologian, like these random people, like theologian and a doctor, like, I mean, mean, anyways. Who's pulling these people together? Bought the abandoned winery. Good hobbies. Below the Perone property. And he replanted a uh, cap in the 1940s. Oh. So this is now the middle vineyard and is referred to as the Tor Ranch. And um, a bunch of Stanford Research Institute engineers came together. Okay. And they made a quarter barrel of a state cap. Um, a quarter barrel? Yeah. Just to like test it out? I think so. I mean, all in the name of science, right? Yeah. Um, they are, well, they bought the property from William Short. And they made that small amount of wine from, they were 10-year-old cab vines. So then they formed a partnership called Ridge Vineyards. Short um, and? In 1962. And no, so the, the engineers bought oh. the land from Short. And then, oh. yeah. Okay, okay. And then they formed this partnership called Ridge Vineyards with the, with the upper vineyard. Okay. So their first official vintage of Montebello was in 1962. Wow. Yeah. So, they, so that's the Perone vineyard, winery that we talked about, the upper vineyard and the middle vineyard that they call now. So Cabin's Inn was really most of the production. Then they were having small amounts of Syrah, Grenache, the Carignan, and the Petite Syrah. Um, and also a limited amount of Chardonnay. 
Because okay you know you're that. in California. <laughs> um, you got to have the shard and the cap. Exactly. <clears throat> uh, so then in um, 1969, Paul Draper joined Ridge Vineyards as a winemaker. And he actually has won, he was won some awards. Yeah, um, later. That's yeah. Um, in 1976, they became the fifth among the, the 10 French and California wines of right. the Judgment of Paris, which we know, which we just talked about. Uh, then it was purchased by Osuka Pharmaceuticals in 1986. Crazy. I don't, I don't really like that. I know. In 88, Paul Draper was appointed the chairman. Um, and then in 1991, they bought Lytton Springs Winery yes. and the old vineyard surrounding the winery in Sonoma. So you've probably seen there's their wines out there too. That's the one that was, it was recommended to drink for our uh, honeymoon dinner. Yes. So then they talk about through the 90s, all these other people joined as winemakers. In the year 2000, Paul Draper was named the Man of the Year by Decanter Magazine, and he received the Distinguished Service Award from Wine Spectator Magazine. What? Yep. Paul Draper was in Selm 3, yep. wasn't he? I, I think th- they interviewed him a bit. Oh, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Because I think, he, I feel like he said he didn't yeah, make the vintage no, yeah, that went, right. but after that, he shortly became, like, lead winemaker. In 2004, Ridge completed the construction of the new winery at Lytton Springs with the focus on Zen. And in 2005, Paul Draper received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the German wine magazine Wein Gourmet. So, and then in 2007, he was given the James Beard Award for winemaking. This guy is like one after the other after the other hitting it out of the park. Yeah, right. I mean, and that I guess goes to show or is just evidence why this is such a well-renowned wine mm-hmm. and why why it has that pr- the price tag that it does i i don't even know what montebello costs like normally i'd say that that is far reaching probably for my budget on a single yeah. bottle of wine um <laughs> for 2006 in 2016 he actually retired as winemaker okay so now he's just he's on the chairman of the board he is a chairman of the board cool and in 2016 one of the wines was selected to be poured at the White House for the first state dinner of the Obama administration. So, fancy schmance. Really? Yeah. So, they have a pretty long history in terms of winemaking. So, they, they've, they're very accomplished. They've been over 50 years. In 2012, they celebrated 50 years as a bonded winery. So, okay. like, that's how long they've been. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely a very long history, especially pre-prohibition to post. They're one of the only wineries that went from pre to post and kind of survived all that. Right. Now a little bit about their winemaking techniques. Yes. Okay. This is where I think it'll be interesting. It is really interesting. So they call themselves pre-industrial in their winemaking techniques. I've never heard of that before. I, I think they've kind either. of self-named it. They don't participate in what they call industrial techniques. So they don't use additives like ultra purple. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. They believe this results in a concentrated wine where it's all fruit all the time and power is deemed preferable to elegance. And they feel these wines lack the complexity, sense of place, and ability to age and develop. So that's your typical like fruit bomb California wine that you might get that doesn't cost a lot of money. Right. I was just going to say, this is more of like the doctoring of wines in order to produce something that you think consumers will like rather than showcasing what the grapes themselves have to offer yes it's the mass production philosophy yeah um okay so instead like i said all grapes are hand-picked 
when they are ripe, not overripe. So they don't want overripe grapes. Sure. Because a lot of people do that for the higher alcohol and sugar content. Okay. Um, they ferment entirely with native yeast from the vineyard rather than cultured yeast strains. They don't use any commercial enzymes. Um, they determine when the wine is ready by tasting for tannin extraction during fermentation. Um, they use malolactic mm-hmm. fermentation that they, they have occur naturally mm-hmm. um, without inoculating it. And then um, they make major winemaking decisions, including blending, based on tasting rather than a predetermined recipe. So there's a lot of blends that yeah. are like, we're going to use a certain amount of this, a certain amount of this, a certain amount of that every year, every vintage. Whereas they base it off the grapes and what they're showing, what they're expressing at that given yes. vintage. So they're tasting while they're blending to make sure they're getting the, the right amount. I, you know, I'd be interested to know how many winemakers do the predetermined formula versus this sort of see what it comes out because there's more science and precision to it than I think most people acknowledge. Right. Most consumers may, may acknowledge I know we talked to with Stringer Sellers how he, you know, sometimes just decides to like toss in a little petite mm-hmm. Verdot. Like mm-hmm. if it, you know, feels like it needs it or if he thinks that like the petite Verdot is really great and it's going to give something special to it. I love it. Right. Um, I think it's great. So they also believe in just minimal additions of sulfur because they think that's essential to avoid wine oxidation or spoilage. So they add a very small amount and it actually on the bottle, yeah, it tells you minimal effective. <laughs> SO2, so sulfur. Yep. Um, it tells you on the bottle in ingredients. It has ingredients like any yeah. other any other label. Right, exactly. Like no other wine does this. Right. And harvested grapes, native yeast, naturally occurring malolactic bacteria, tartaric acid, and oak from barrel aging, minimal effective sulfur. So they do add a small amount when the grapes are crushed after fermentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they add a small amounts when they're um, racking. So it's very minimal, but they need a little bit because they believe that, that this counteracts the spoilage. So this one's interesting. This next part about egg whites. I feel like yeah. we talked about so it. So they're very transparent, which I like. Yes. That they really are telling you what they're doing and what they're yeah. not doing. And a lot of people don't do that. Um, so they do say occasionally, occasionally, if they have a wine lot that has a lot of tannin, that more than they'd like, mm-hmm. then they may fine it gently using fresh egg whites. These precipitate to the bottom <coughs> of the tanker barrel, and then um, they remove some of the tannin. So the whole point is to help improve balance. Um, and then when the egg whites have formed a firm layer, then they clean this off. So it almost sounds like they have... Let's say they have like the big vat of wine. They put the egg whites in the top and they slowly, as they sink down towards the bottom. Well, they also use pad filtration that removes any trace of egg whites. So they make sure that it's all gone. Here's my thing about that. Yeah. It's not chemical. It's not. It's It's natural. It's not. It's egg whites. I mean, like it's a natural thing. I'm okay with that. Like they're not using any sort of like additional chemicals or any like filtration Techniques that use like chemicals to filter, they're not doing anything like that. So for me, I'm okay with that. Like I'm okay with the egg white situation. It's, it is gross, kind of gross when you think about it, but it's, I have had plenty of cocktails that had egg whites in them. Right. I mean, we eat them all the time. Serious question. Have you tasted this again? Yeah. 
It's smoky for me. It's, I feel like the acidity, it disappeared. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. totally. And now I'm picking up more tannins. So we're going to, we're going to be, um, the next pour is going to be with this my little bottle This is crazy. We've been talking for like, well, we've been talking for like almost a half hour. So, but I just so impressed that it tastes like a totally different wine. Maybe the coffee is deteriorated. Did, or I removed, think, been removed from I my mouth I think that's too. partially it. <laughs> that coffee is not a good selection. Um, <clears throat> not so, so that's. I mean, Ridge, kind of, a, go on their, they have so much information on their website. Ooh. I mean, I know we have found this as we've kind of gone from wine to wine, mm-hmm. that some wineries put a lot of info on their website and others don't. And I really enjoy the ones that do. I love so, the transparency. Yeah. There's a lot in there. There's a lot <clears> about their history. Um, there's a lot about like their winemaking techniques, all their different wines. They have tons of information on each vintage. So really cool. Take a peek if you're interested. It's so okay. So you're gonna pour. Can we talk about some decanted? Yeah. So while you're pouring, I'm gonna. So for those who don't know, there are three films. The first one came out in 2012. The second one came out in 2015, and the third one was just officially released as of November 30th this yeah. year. Yeah. Super exciting, but they all, these films are, it's so interesting because they each have a very different focus mm-hmm. in terms of what they're trying to achieve and what they're trying to highlight and illustrate for the viewer. The first one followed, it says four, but there were actually more players that they kind of like brought into this filming. I'd say the primary ones were Ian, Brian, Dustin, Delin. But then you also had, is it Sabato, uh, Dustin's friend, who he ended up rooming with? Yeah, they didn't um, really go too much into his. Yeah, there were definitely a few other people that were in the mix from the director at the premiere. Started following this gentleman, Ian Cobble, in 2009 during his journey for studying for the Master Sommelier certification, which is like the last step in terms of the sommeliers, certified sommeliers guild. It's, I mean, it opens your eyes into how insane it this is, process is. The number, okay. I think I had a fair amount of flashcards when I was back in college, but holy crap. They had thousands of index cards. The piles are just like ridiculous. They joked in the first film about having a bonfire to just like, once they pass this exam to just like torch it all and be like, it's all done. And just for, I mean... The details they need to know, is it's crazy. Unbelievable. I couldn't. Maybe I could if I didn't have a regular job. This was their regular job. I this, mean, you have to also keep it in mind. It wasn't, though. They had other jobs. Well, yeah, but some of them didn't, I believe. That Actually, that may be true. But I do think many of them were in the food service industry. Yeah. And in the wine industry, to Right, so if you were doing a job that was pretty much wine all day... Yeah, and then so they have the benefit of being having that access. Well, right? part of becoming a sommelier and a master sommelier, they tell you, is you need to put your time in in the industry in the wine. So you're either working on the floor, but you're probably in the beginning like just stocking wine or something. And yeah. like if you're working in a vineyard, you're probably cleaning barrels. Like <laughs> you start out doing like the shit job, and then you move your way up. But part of becoming a som is the serv- is service. Exactly. That's part of the exam. So you need to know that. It looks real intense. Right. So you can know as much as you want about wine, but you need to know service. Right. So the first film took the, followed a handful of 
candidates for the master sommelier uh, certification through the studying into the exam and amazing that they were actually in the exam rooms as if the exams weren't stressful enough to have a camera in your face while you're doing it. Just astounding. But it really sort of highlighted this process and this thing that I never even thought existed. I wouldn't have imagined, you know, this. I had never known about it. So, and I remember the first time I had heard about it, you and Adam had watched it. And I think Adam came when we went up to dinner one time. Adam started doing like the, the run spiel. the eight. Okay, yeah, he ran the grid. Can I can I give a story on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's awesome. So we watched we watched one and two so many times. Like it is on mm-hmm. all the time. Um, is it good decanted? The decanting is like immediate. Like you have more of the depth of everything. Just like kind of. Everything's sort of melded together and complementing each other now. I'd still say that it smells mm-hmm. extremely acidic. It smells very bright. I'm still pulling like raspberries and sour cherries off of that. I am but too. taste wise. And you do get a little you do get a little like maybe leather on the nose a little I think bit. that's the smoke. I'm getting that the, the smoke is less with the decanting though. Okay. Um, it is definitely... The tannins are more pronounced. Yeah. And I think the tannins became more pronounced after sitting with the uh, undecanted. It's a clean wine, though. It's so good. It's a very clean, well-balanced, smooth wine. I do feel like it's leaving a little bit of a... I want to say chalky taste in my mouth. There's like a little after, so that just means that I want to keep like drinking to get <laughs> to get rid of that. But it's, it, it's good. I feel it's like good. it's a wine that you sip on for a while to figure it out. Yeah. Just needs a minute to unfold. Yeah. Um, Sorry. So, anyways, stories. So we've watched the two documentaries so many times, mm-hmm. and the first one, my husband has a great memory. Yes. <laughs> Especially with movies, he can like quote movies like crazy. So, I've just seen them like once, probably. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So someone they run the grid, which is like how they start tasting wine. Yeah. Jamie's going to pull it up for us right now. Yeah. So they go into taste and smell and alcohol and earth and all of it. So like there's every component that you're supposed to run through in a certain order that you learn oh, when tasting wine, including the, the, that, which has become famous that Ian was, that had described a wine. Oh, it's as, way more. As a freshly opened... Oh my God, can of tennis balls. Can of tennis balls, which is hilarious because <laughs> in the Psalm 3 movie, they do have uh, a picture of him with a freshly... With a can of tennis balls, like yes. popping it open. He also said that it was like a freshly cut garden hose. That, that is and true. And then the can... The, and we were the like... new can of tennis balls. We were like, this is ridiculous. There's no way. And this is where it comes to when you describe wines. I mean, I'd, I would put it out there that I think I'm very primitive still in how I describe wines. I'm mm-hmm. like, ooh... And I don't know half of the fruit aromas that, you know, I could be smelling or tasting. Yeah. But that's okay because the idea, and I'd say the idea behind Ian because that whole tennis ball and freshly cut garden hose thing was, everybody made fun of him for it, but it's, he's trying to put a perception and, and give a better analogy or illustration for what he's experiencing because it may be something that, you know, when you open like a pair of shoes or something like and it's leather, you're going to get a massive like whiff yeah, or something, you know, sure. there are certain experiences like 
one of the other master psalms who was helping them study and practice, like tastings, he said that he once described a wine as his grandmother's purse. And and then others say like mothballs. And it's like your grandmother's uh, closet. This is the cool thing about wine. You associate things with experiences too, and that helps that you true. recall. That is and true. It's, so that's why, you know, these, these things sound ridiculous sometimes. But it's still, it's not that they're irrational or there's no purpose behind them. No, I, I He's agree. just trying to convey something that resonates with him. And I would argue that some people try to make the most absurd sounding, you know, calls on what wine smells and tastes and whatever, like... You don't have to go that far. Some of that may be for show, but I do think that some of that, you know, it's they're trying to have a purpose. I agree. <clears throat> but I have a wine tasting grade. Yeah, I have it too. So basically he would go through. So it's sight, nose, palate, and then your conclusion. But there's all these components of each of those. Right. So right. he would go through. He memorized what they would say. And so <laughs> we would go to these wine tastings. And uh, he would just, plus. Yeah, he would just be like... So I'm getting, and then you'd run through the grid and I'm like, and people would be like, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, he has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> but it was hilarious because he's like, I'm getting wet asphalt. And I'm like, oh my God, this is not. <laughs> that's why I said to him, that's why I said to him when we interviewed him, like, did you like it? Like, because he said something about his wet stone or a wet log, and I was like, did you like but it? that was his real opinion. This was just, right, like, right. going to, like... Going through the, the memorized scene. The memorized scene. scene. And people, people... And this is the thing, sometimes, that I dislike about the wine industry in the sense that, like, some people are just like, oh, my God, yes, you're so right. And I'm like, <clears throat> but it's... He's not. <laughs> he's just saying something that he memorized. He could apply it to any wine. But because he sounded like he knew what he was talking about... They're like, yeah, yeah, you must be right. Yeah. S- speak with confidence, yeah. people. So anyways, watch the, the first movie and you will definitely get the taste of what I'm talking about with the grid and it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And that is part of the court of Somal- of Master Sommeliers. Right. Like that's their, their real thing. They do run the grid. You, you know, so if you ever are interested in um, just knowing more and kind of learning about the components of wine that you should be looking for, I would just go to the website and download the... The grid. I also think, and I'm I'm just gonna make a plug for one of my favorite wine resources is Wine Folly because she Wine Folly is I'd say primarily Madeline posting a lot of things, but she and she's in all each of the Psalm movies actually. She puts things in a way that makes everything approachable and I think more dare I say palatable. And she has so many resources. I mean, she has, how would you describe certain colors and what wines those typically are associated with? She has like the aromas chart and things like that. So definitely fantastic. This wine's getting better. Oh yeah. Yeah. I do think it probably did need to just open up a little bit. So some into the bottle is number two. Number two. And that focuses more on the history, the background about winemaking. This is the first of their films where there's like different chapters, I think. Yeah, and I think the difference. So the first one, I feel like you get to know the the, the characters, and they like like you said, they didn't know this was going to be a big thing. They thought they had just, no idea, and they were just the camera was in their face all the time. So they you get really real, like feelings and expressions because people are just used to having the camera there. Right. 
And also at the end, you find out who passes and who doesn't, and it's not what you expect. Agreed. Which I think... I was shocked. I'm not going to ruin that for anyone who hasn't seen the first movie, but I think that twist at the end, unplanned, it's a documentary. Right. But like, it's really interesting, because you're like, what? And the other thing, so it was released in 2012, but again, they started filming in 2009, and then really, 2009 was focused on one player, one candidate, Ian... But then they were like, oh, let's loop in like the whole study group yeah. or whatever. So they were basically filming before. I think that they, I think that this was filmed for like the 2010 certification, if I'm not mistaken. So there was stuff that happened in between the filming stopping and the release. And so I think the film did a nice job of sort of moving forward and showing what happened within those couple years. Right. But, yes, it was a bit surprising and uh, definitely worth a good watch. Yes. And then the second movie, I think, is more that you have all these other characters in the winemaking. Because this was not just the sommeliers that we watched. Although they they came back. They came back. They're part of the second movie, but it's more you get these other people. And Fred Dame is in all three movies. Yes. So he is one of the master sommeliers, like one of the grandfathers of wine. Like youngest American Mm -hmm. to get it. Yep. So back in, I think, the 80s. So they um, they go into the second movie where you kind of learn about some of these historic wines. Yes. And all these like events that happen throughout wine history, for California at least, in the United States, that made California yeah. what it is. And then they kind of go into like some of these uh, historical French wines. Yes. So it's... Do you remember when the father and son tasted the wine? Yes. And he was, like, he's basically, this winemaker in France was cultivating his son, essentially, or, like, bringing him up to take over, because it was all a generational thing. Mm-hmm. And it was just unbelievable, because, like... This, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> it was, well, and the kid, I feel like, was so nervous yeah. about it. And so he was like, yeah, this is a great wine. It was like a wine that was made when he was born or something, like, the vintage when he yeah. was born or something like that. And... It, it's just, it's fun to see how the youth and the family of winemakers yeah. are just sort of like raised on this. Well, that happens and, in France and not really here. And Italy. You know? in and Italy. Italy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, that's the kind of nice thing about, and they kind of go into that. And they, they and they also go into one of the most famed vineyard, wineries, wineries of all time in France that, Roman not, I'm not. Oh, sorry. Damn it. <laughs> that they say like cameras never go in there. Like the wines are like thousands of dollars and you're just like, what? So like it blows your mind, the level just of intensity and like that and all this history that goes into French winemaking. So you have that and then you, then they compare it to California and it's just such an interesting contrast, but it's great to see all of it. And I think it opens your eyes as a wine drinker to what goes into these wines and like what you should be looking for and maybe what's maybe what you don't want and you know i mean so i actually think i enjoyed two better than one it's i i agree for the for the sake of like learning more about wine i think i learned more in number two and i do think that there was it, it sort of had a different take on it because it wasn't just a documentary filming individuals like over the course of however many months this was like wanting to get at different aspects so they call these chapters and this is where I think the director's brother started his artistry for the films. Right. 
and really kind of touching on different aspects of winemaking, the traditions, different methods, how or why people may choose to modify those mm-hmm. methods, what that may mean in certain countries among certain like winemaking communities. It's it was very cool, and again, talking more about processes and describing more what you get in the bottle, which is why it's called some into the bottle and not some too. Yes. Yeah. And I, but the one, but one is I think more entertaining in terms of like just the, Ooh, the dynamics. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Dynamics are so crazy because you also think about like when you were studying for a test in college. Yeah. And you had like a study group and you're like, you just are like so tense and just like so stressed out and you're not sleeping and you're just And if there was wine. a camera in my face... At, oh. Like I would probably kill someone. So I mean, props to them. I probably they, shove the camera in their face and whatever. They didn't know what this was going to become. Right. Okay. So going into three, three, it was amazing. Amazing. And the focus of this one was different, drastically different. And yep. it took a spin on the judgment of Paris, mm-hmm. which was unbelievable. So it was all. I'd say. I would venture to say it's literally all about blind tasting. The whole focus of the movie is talking they about They focus blind a lot of on blind tasting. And and talking about the judgment of Paris and what that meant, which yes. is why we're drinking Reg. Yep. But also taking another spin on it, applying it in a couple different ways, and just revisiting this this idea. And um, I've never mm-hmm. blind tasted. I and really want to. Fred Dame blind tasted on camera. For, for the, the first time. Awesome. Was it the first time ever? I don't know if it was the first time ever, but it was definitely... In a long ass time. In decades. Yeah. In decades. If he has before. I'm not and sure guess what? He, he fucking called it. I know. I'm sorry. It was amazing. I really wanted to... So, in the movie, they have two wines that he's supposed to blind taste, and he calls the first one. They never show the second one, so I was like... Oh Sarah God. turns to me, and she's like, I wonder if he got the second one right. But then in the Q&A, someone asked, and he did get that right. Actually, I don't even think he, anybody asked. I think uh, Jason Wise, the director, literally just said, oh, and if you're wondering, he did call the second one right. And we were like, ah. Oh. Yeah. Jason Wise is, is very excited about wine, which I thought was crazy because he's the director, so he's not really a wine person, but he became a wine person throughout these films. Yeah. I mean, he said that he'll still drink the stuff that he used to, which but is... But older. But older. Yeah. Yes. So a big point of this movie that I got... And the something that they say is 95% of wine that all America Americans buy, they consume pretty much immediately. Within eight hours, I think yes. they said. That's crazy. So one of their big points in like the Q&A thing was buy wine and age it. Like we need to like hold on to some of this stuff because it will be worth something later and it will taste better most of the time. So research a little bit about your wine and figure out, you know, how long she ages for or something. Yeah. And, and buy wine is like, if you're into it, as a commodity, as an investment. Right, right. That was a huge point for me, at least, a take-home point from the third movie. Well, and I think that, you know, we typically don't have, what's it called? You know, you and I, we have wine collections, <laughs> if you will. And I have started to, um, I've actually started to label my wines and say like, open after 2020 or like there are some things that I know we've gone to tastings before and they've said we recommend that this that you drink this within the next like or after another five years of aging and I was like shoot 
And actually, do you remember when we were at the recent wine tasting? We bought the Gamba. Yep. And we were like, I, I bought two bottles because I was like, I want to be able to drink one like now. And then I want to, I want to see what happens to it later. And I don't know that I've done that with a lot of wines to have like an old and a new. I did do it once, one other time. And I have like a Merlot from Castello di Amorosa that I have three of them. So one is like to drink now. One's like a couple years and one's like a few years beyond that. Yeah. Just to kind of see. I got four bottles of Gamba downstairs, dude. I know you do. <laughs> I also have that 2009 Chateau Moussard. So that one I'm <gasps> holding on to. Yep. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah, we'll see what happens. So I'm, yeah, I agree, and I think it's nice to also write notes of how you felt about it the first time around, yeah. and then if you are gonna do two, and then age that other one, and you know, make sure you remember where you put those notes. Well, those little labels you got me are awesome. Oh, is that what you're gonna do? Yeah. So there's these wine labels that you can hang on your wine. Yep. That you can put little notes on, or you can have a little wine journal. That's what I have. Yeah. So. Anyways, if you're if you're getting into wine, these are really cool things that you can do. So, also about the movie, which was super awesome. We've talked about Fred Dame, okay? Yeah. But there are two other big players that I are a major focus him. of Psalm 3. And those are Steven Spurrier, who we mm-hmm. talked about recently in our Bottle Shock episode, because yep. he was the man, the British man, behind the Judgment of Paris Tastings, who yes. was like, I think American wines, specifically California wines, can hold up against French wines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no. Sorry guys, my knife, my cheese knife just broke. <laughs> this is a real life podcast. Real life. So he did that. And again, as Sarah mentioned, he re- basically redid the whole thing in 2006. But he's still a man behind like massively like as he states mm-hmm. probably one of the most historic events in wine history and now he has his own winery in england crazy it was weird yeah. i love that his wife though was like eh, i like <laughs> to give people advice not to do this <laughs> but so just because it requires so much work oh so much work and she loves it though but it's one of those things where it's not for the faint yeah. of heart i think because wine is like their life like his yeah. life like it's okay because he understands it but for people who are just like i think i'm just going to retire and just yeah. open a vineyard she's she's his wife is trying to be realistic and like nah, maybe that's not the right position mm-hmm. the third person is jancis robinson but she is iconic she's one of the most uh, world renowned uh, wine critics what surprised me about her is that she really, she has like a psychology or sociology and uh, philosophy background, not anything related to enology or anything like yeah. that. And some, she's a writer. She was a writer for a wine magazine and somehow that just like escalated. And it's amazing to me because she's accomplished so much and her resources, what she's written are used across the world as one of the some of the resources that people who are studying for the master psalm exam use. Yeah. It's it's just unbelievable. It's crazy. I know. Yeah, I, I learned a lot. And we also learned about um, what their aha wines were. So the oh, aha wine is the wine that like opened your eyes and wanted you to be to know more about wine and become part of the wine world. And as we mentioned, a ridge wine was one of Fred Dane's Ah, uh, wines. Yeah. Steven Spurrier, it was this old port. 1901. Which they drank 
Which was crazy. Okay. 100, 117 years old. Yeah. It, unbelievable. But you guys need to see this movie. It's just, it's, it's such a special, I had a smile just slapped on my face like the whole time if I wasn't busting out loud laughing because some of the things that are said are just amazing and it's just, I just get so much joy out of these films. So <laughs> at the premiere, there was a Q&A session after mm-hmm. and Dustin and Dylan were there as long with the director as we mentioned before and so Jamie got up yes, and did. asked a question and I do have the recording. Yes. Can I play? Sure. Jamie was the last question. That's Jason Wise. Yeah, it was 98 Ben 707, made by John Duvall. Yeah. Everything. 
Hey, can I say really fast before we go? Please. We have as, one more question. As I know, I know, but as a starving filmmaker, pre-order on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> and also, That was really fun. And the fact that they were able to answer my questions was awesome. That was Jason Wise who just said, and actually as of like today, they have hit the number one documentary, documentary. in 12 yeah. different countries. So Insane. kudos Yay. to some. Um, really fun and super interesting though. So Sarah, do you... I? We talked a little bit about Do this I have on an our aha way line? home. Yeah. You know, I don't... Okay. I know they're like, everybody has an aha wine. I don't know if I do have an aha wine. So, okay. like, I can think of a few wines that I know I remember being really, really good and mm-hmm. really opening my eyes to, like, wanting to buy better wines. Yeah. And I think, actually, believe it or not, one of them was a Penfolds. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I don't remember what... Vintage, like vintage or what blend? I mean, Penfolds or, has so many. So many, blends but I do remember. I do remember starting to buy better wine through Penfolds, and then I also um, really, I think Prisoner was one for me mm-hmm. that really opened my eyes a little more into like how good wine can be, um, and Paul Hobbs actually. Yeah. So I think. You know, those were the ones that kind of like... So I actually started out on an Australian California kick as, as I started getting into wine. I think I've less so been into Australian wine lately and more into Oregon and French. Um, and still California. I still love California's in. I still do. But you're expanding. Um, expanding. So like now like Oregon Pinot is like one of my... I have a love affair with it. I mean, if I'm going to get a Pinot, it is... It's typically going to be from Oregon. Yeah. Like, I know, I would have, to me, that guarantees that it's going to be something that I personally like out of Pinot, because I think that there are so many Pinots out there exactly. that don't, they may be more true to the ideal expression or the expected expression. Right. But I really like what Oregon offers. Oh, yeah. And Pinot. I love it. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the French, the French wine getting it kind of trying to learn more about the different you know varietals they have i really like cote de Rhone, so mm-hmm. like i've kind of been getting into that and then recently also washington Syrahs i've been exploring mm, yes. so i think like you kind of start out with one area and you kind of like branch and so for me i i don't know if there was a single aha wine but definitely like i can kind of pinpoint you know when i started drinking better wine and like the wines that i remember being really good and kind of bringing yeah. Bringing everything into it. So, yeah. What about you? I admittedly, I have to give you the credit for my how oh, so wine. Because I, when we were living in the place that shall not be named, I remember, you know, I would feel really bad buying like a $12 bottle of wine. Okay. So that was like mostly my limit. And I remember that you and I had shared a bottle of Mayomi together. And this was when, um, Joe Wagner still owned it. Yeah. I'll just say that. Um, but it was a 20, it's, it was typically like 20, I think $26, something like that. Yeah. I think it's cheaper now. Oh, I just saw it for 17. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's much cheaper because he bought, sold it and I think it's not the same thing right. that it used to be. But 
three years ago, the vintages that we were drinking from, you know, that were being sold at the time, they, I, that was the first time that I was like, huh, there's a drastic difference from the, this $12 bottle of wine to this $26 bottle of wine. And I was like, holy cow, there is a reason why when you spend more, typically you are going to get better wine. Yeah. And that doesn't mean across the board that there's no. no good wines at a cheaper level. There are. I mean, oh, a yeah. Kung Fu Girl, uh, girl, I would rock Kung Fu Girl Riesling. Like, and it's so cheap. Yeah. yeah. And uh, comparatively, for sure. Yeah. But I think that there, you know, it made me realize that there are reasons why I may want to, you know, expand my budget constraints a little bit for certain bottles of wine. I'd say fast forward three and a half years, and I'd say that my budget has grown a bit. I have a wine collection that really? I a little bit. <laughs> I haven't noticed. Um, and I'm not buying Mayomi. I'm buying other things. I do still have a bottle of Mayomi. Don't on you my wish you thing. had the ones from like a few years ago? Yeah. I wonder what the vintages that I have. I think I have a 2014 actually. Still. Well, this also goes into like saving your wine. Yeah, for sure. But so, you know, it's that again, that was sort of my aha in just in terms of like general wine, mm-hmm. I don't know that. I mean, there are a lot of wines that sort of stand out to me. So I don't know that there's, like you said, really a specific wine that is like, holy cow, this is like the mecca of wines for me. Yeah. Um, was there anything that you felt that you learned through the series of the wine of the films, excuse me, or the conversation from the Q and A that? really sort of was profound or that you think just really is going to stick with you? I really think that 95% of media consumption wine was something that I was, I mean, I did not think that a lot of people did that, but 95% within eight hours, that to me was like, whoa. I mean, and maybe I just felt like that was validation for how much wine I buy and put in my... You're like, yeah, I'm already doing it. Because they like were promoting that and I was like, yes, validation. So potentially, but that really, I mean, I was shocked to hear that. And I'll say, that's not the only time that I've heard that statistic. I was recently listening to another podcast and specifically talking about aging and she said the same exact thing. She's like, we as Americans primarily drink things very short, very quickly after purchasing and it's one of those things where there is definitely a benefit gained by aging a wine, you know, a year, three years. Cabernet Sauvignons can be decades. Yeah. You know, it, it's amazing what you can get and just sort of what changes within the wine. Right. And it's cool science. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, what about you? Favorite you know, moment? Oh, favorite moment. Or, or like you said. I, from the films, I would say... I really liked the man, I can't remember what winery it was, but they um, opened a bottle, I want to say it was like a 1946 champagne, and uh, he sabered the bottle in the cell, in the wine cellar. Oh, I do remember that, yeah. And poured it, and when he poured it, it was so interesting because it almost took a honeyed color as opposed to being so very light and pale, and you could see like there weren't as many bubbles but that is an expectation of sparkling wine. But it was just such a cool thing because I would say this. The joy on this man's face because it was such a special thing. And they had, I think, 10, 10 or 12 bottles, I think is what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
they just knocked it down by one in the film before the filming of the film. <laughs> Excuse me. And so he just was relishing that moment. And I thought, wow, these films have brought such unique experiences and once in a lifetime things to so many that I just thought it was amazing. I, I find it to be, it's, it seems that it's a very unexpected outcome for the films because again, I don't think Jason yeah. thought that this is going to be a recurring thing. In fact, right. some three almost wasn't even made. Yeah. It was at the pressure I think of their producer and you know, there's, there's, there's definitely a want, a desire from the wine drinking community, even outside of industry to get more information and see more, you know, be like a fly on the wall of these cool things. So That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. So we recommend all three. Oh my and, God, yes. and I want a blind taste so yes. badly. I'm going to have to host a party. We're, well, didn't you just buy the cards? I did. Yes. So did we're you gonna have or to no? no. Okay. But I will. But I figured we could try them. We'll try them for sure. Yeah. I, I, mine is delivered by Christmas. I did that okay. part of Kickstarter. So we'll see what I get. That. We'll have to have yeah. like a, a post-holiday blind tasting party. Yeah. So yeah, try try that if you're into it. You know, you could even just do it without the card game. You could just like have everyone bring a specific I don't know, give them a few options of wine to bring and then see what people think. Cover them up in foil, your bottles. That's what they say, although here's my thing about it, and this is why I thought it was so unique in the movie, Mm -hmm. in Psalm 3, with the tasting, the blind tasting that Dustin led. He poured all of them into into carafes and numbered the carafes and numbered the bottles. I think that that would probably be, and this is assuming you have the ability to get your hands on the same vessel, same shaped vessel, because... Certain wine bottles have different shapes. So True. if you're pouring from one, that could be more challenging. You'd have to be pretty knowledgeable though. I think for our general population, you know. That's true, might... but I wouldn't want to, I would need to fa- have somebody else do it for me because I just, I would not want to see what the shapes of the bottles are. <laughs> the shapes were. of the bottle. Okay, fair, yeah, fair, fair, yeah. fair. So, but so fun. Such a great yeah. experience for us to go down there. It made me feel like I was a part of history, weirdly, but it was, I don't know, it's cool. Agreed. Yeah. I thought it was awesome. Well, thanks guys for listening. Thanks. Psalm 3 is available on iTunes and Amazon Prime. And I think Google Play as well. Yeah, I think that's what they posted. So get it. Get it. Get edumacated as Sarah likes to say. Edumacated. Until (laughs) next time. Cheers. Cheers. Bitches. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you, so send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers Cheers from from the the girls of DBP. DBP.